draw your attention back to Genesis chapter 3 today. Genesis chapter 3. We'll read verses 1 through 7 again. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall ye touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Lord and heavenly Father, creator of all things, our creator and our covenant God, we come before you this morning to look into your word, to be fed by your word. Lord, we pray that we would have humble hearts this morning, Lord, to see what a great thing sin is, that it is that disease which plagues mankind. Lord, as we look at the beginning here of the fall in which we all uh, came to inherit this sin nature. Lord, let us truly see the sin that exists in our lives and throw ourselves at the foot of the cross that we might find peace from sin. Lord, that we might find redemption from slavery to sin that we might find freedom from the power of sin. Lord, that we might look to Christ, who alone could be tempted without sin. May we always be looking to him who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Lord, be with us this morning, be with our fellowship, Lord, that we have after the message and after the meal, Lord, that we might be drawn closer together and closer to you, Lord, that we might lift one another up, we might be a help to one another as we go through this wilderness that we're in. Lord, we thank you and we praise you and we give glory to your name. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, we pick up where we left off last week, still looking at the answer to why things are the way they are and what is the solution for the way things are. 
We won't finish looking at Genesis chapter 3 today. I'm sure that that surprises all of you. But we won't finish looking at chapter 3 today. I'll probably be here for a few more weeks as we continue to look at these foundational things that we find here in Genesis as God reveals himself to us. Uh, things that are crucial for us to believe, crucial for us to understand, if we are to understand what it is that we have as far as a need and what a great supplier of all that we need that our God is. Well, as we begin, uh, we've got to finish verse 1 here of Genesis 3, which we started last week. Uh, Genesis 3.1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, last week we looked mostly at the need to understand this that is taking place here in Genesis 3 as a whole, um, this whole process that, uh, that is going on here that uh, leads to the fall, uh, the circumstances that lead up to the fall, that answers the, the, the vast array of questions that we have when we look at the way things are in the world, and we have the question of why these, these things and why this world has turned from the paradise that we see in Genesis 1 through 2 into this pit of wretchedness that we find ourselves in now. We, see, we said last week that Satan did not outrightly de deny God's word in what we looked at last week. Uh, he didn't do that directly, but by his question, he fostered in the mind of Eve that God's word is subject to man's interpretation, that God's word is subject to our understanding or our judgment. Uh, he did this when he started his question with, did God actually say? Well, then the subject of that question, did God actually say? Uh, I don't know if I have my right uh, designations for the English language like uh, right, but the subject of this, did God actually say, is you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Now, this question about whether God actually said this has the great hiss of the serpent in this. It was a very calculated, it was a very discerning question that is asked, and we will see as we look into Eve's answer that it is having the desired effect that Satan would have it have upon Eve and the way that she is thinking. Uh, and we'll see that as she speaks with this tempter here. Well, the hiss contained in the subject of that question is that God has been stingy, if you will. He's not allowed mankind to eat of the vast wealth of provision that he has provided for them, that he has created here in the world and in particular in the garden. The occasion of this first question, this very first recorded accusation against God's word, should have been the occasion or the time for our mother Eve to set the record straight as to the word of God. The question provided a wonderful opportunity for Eve to do that. Although the question Satan asks seems to be an insinuation, it's but the beginning of an all-out assault on God's word. It is him putting his foot in the door or opening up a crack to be a bigger separation. It is twisting and subverting God's word. Not really a full and complete denial because there was just a hint 
just a hint of truth left in his erring question. And it's through this that Satan undermines the very generosity of God towards his creation and his provision for the first man and the first woman. But how ridiculous is this? I mean, think about this. How ludicrous is it, an insinuation like this, that God would have provided everything, everything that he created, everything. God placed Adam and Eve in his perfect creation, put them in not only the perfect creation, but the perfect garden paradise, the paradise of God, the garden of God, and the insinuation that he has been somehow less than generous with them. When in reality, the truth of the matter is, all that a human being could ever desire was at Adam and Eve's fingertips. All they could enjoy, all the beauty, the unmarred beauty, the beauty that we see now is marred with sin. Our eyes are marred with now a sinful nature. Adam and Eve beheld God's creation in its unmarred beauty. That was theirs to live in and to rule over and to subdue, not only for their benefit and pleasure, but it was also by the very command of God that they do that. Genesis 1.28 we look back at that, we read, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We see nothing here of stinginess. We see nothing but generosity and benevolence, love and provision, from the hand of the creator, from the hand of the almighty God to his creatures. And Satan insinuates through a lie built upon a partial truth, a hint, just a, just a hint of truth regarding the one, the singular prohibition given to man that he should not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan insinuates that God is too strict that he's too demanding or too restrictive. In fact, it is an assault not just on the generosity of God, but on God's very goodness. Martin Lloyd-Jones stated this. He said, but still more serious, the devil insinuated a doubt about the goodness of God. And we will see this more as we look at the exchange between Eve and the devil. Well, in Genesis 2, excuse me, Genesis 3, 2 through 3, we have the reply of Eve to the devil recorded for us. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. There are a few things I want to point out from this this morning here in her reply. Uh, we said that she had the opportunity to set the record straight, but she falls woefully short of that. But before we get there, I want to point out that the wise thing to do 
And the one thing that we might learn by application from this is that it would have been far more effective to have fled the tempter than to engage with the tempter. To shut down the conversation as Christ did. Do you remember in Matthew 16, 23, when he heard the hiss of the serpent coming through Peter? What did he say? He said in Matthew 16, 23, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So it would have been far more advantageous for Eve in this situation, in this conversation she is having with the devil, to have turned and said, get away from me. Get away. Get out of the garden which my husband Adam and I have been given to work, to rule, and to subdue. She should have told Satan he was seeking to be a hindrance to her as Satan's thoughts and his mind were not upon the things of God we can clearly see that his thoughts are contrary to those thoughts to the thoughts the design the will and to the word of Eve's creator and <coughs> Satan's creator she should have said be gone foul tempter get out of my sight for you would lead me astray. Is this not what we've been told to do to resist the enemy and he will flee from us? James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. What was Eve's problem? She wasn't submitting herself to God. She was listening to the devil. So James says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Well, let us see and learn from Eve's mistakes and from the continued mistake of all of mankind and from our own experience that to flirt with the devil, to in enter into a contest of wits with the devil or to commune with him in any way is a temptation that we should most assuredly flee from. Think about the instruction given to us in Proverbs over and over again. Proverbs 8, uh, 1, 8 through 16. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us. Let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole. Like those who go down to the pit, we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us, and we will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. For their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. Don't walk, Proverbs tells us, in the way with them. Don't spend time there. Flee from them. Flee from it. Don't go down that road. 
Proverbs 2, 16 through 20 says, So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to, to death and her paths to, to the departed. None, none who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. Keep to the good ways, Proverbs says. The right way, God's way. Don't be enticed to even enter into the presence of that which would lead you astray. Again, Proverbs 3, 5 through 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean to your own understanding. God's word is not subject to our judgment, to our understanding. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. Who is the him? In all your ways acknowledge God. And he will make straight your paths. What would have kept Eve from being tempted by the devil? Don't lean to your own understanding. Don't listen to the enticements of the devil. Listen to God. He'll make your way straight. He'll straighten your paths. Flee from evil. Flee from the evil one and his lies. And once again, Proverbs 5, 1 through 8, My son, be attentive to wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. She is under the, and doing the bidding of her father, the devil. Think about the way that the devil talked to Eve. Is this not an apt description of this? Her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. And now, O oh sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. What a victory is won when the tempter is shut down before temptation can even occur. This is much better than to go through the temptation. Think about the scripture we read earlier from Psalm 1. Blessed or blessed, full of blessednesses, is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Don't take counsel that is contrary to God's word. Don't stand with those who oppose his word and his way for their own word and their own way. For in due time, if you do that, you will be sitting in the seat of those who you once listened to, those who you once walked in their way. Don't listen to the counsel of the serpent. Don't stand with him, or you may soon find that you are sitting in his seat 
flee from him. But this is not what he did. So let's look at a reply and see what we can discern from this. This is what one commentator here refers to as the dialogue of dissent. The dialogue of dissent. In this whole conversation between Eve and the serpent, we see a descent from the heights of knowing God's word to questioning God's word and then ultimately to rejecting God's word and then disobeying God's word. This is a dialogue of dissent. And here it begins with the woman's reply. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Here is the first point at which we see the insinuations of Satan having an effect on Eve. Here, even in the first of her replies, we see that she is beginning to minimize the word of God. She says we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But is that what God said? Look back at Genesis 1.29. Look back at Genesis 1.29 and see what God said. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And now look at the single prohibition along with the retelling of this in Genesis 2, 16 through 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, that is Adam, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. A single prohibited tree and all others, every other tree permitted. Every. Eve has already begun the descent into rebellion. Satan is here at the outset, poisoned the stream of thoughts that are in her mind, the mind of Eve. She minimizes the permission to eat. She has already in her mind begun to narrow the greatness of the good and the goodness and the provision of God to her and her husband. Her answer continues in verse 3. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The second thing she does, besides removing the every here, in, in her mind narrowing down the goodness of God, the second thing that she does is she fails to name the tree as God did in his prohibition. God said, once again, in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. There were two trees in the midst of the garden. Two. Look at the last part of Genesis 2, 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree 
of the knowledge of good and evil. There were two specific trees there, surrounded in the way that I see this or perceive this, surrounded by every other tree that was good for food and was permitted to be partaken of. But here in the midst, in the very center of the garden of God, this paradise garden, there was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Only one of those trees were they prohibited from eating of. Now, I don't know, and the text doesn't tell us, if this conversation occurred in the midst of the garden here or not. But I think sometimes that we have art and storybooks that we read as children, viewed as children, and we always have the picture in our minds of the serpent coiled up in the branches of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the serpent is speaking to Eve in that place. I'm not convinced that is accurate. Eve doesn't say that we may eat of the tree except this one. She refers to it as if it is away from her. Look at Genesis 3.3 again. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Either way, her response should have been something like this. God has said we may eat of every tree. Every tree except this one. One called the knowledge of good, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If we eat of that tree, we will surely die. But see, see Satan, here is another tree there in the midst whereby I may eat of it and get my fill. It is called the tree of life. And all the rest, except this one, except this one, which my God, my creator, and your creator has said we shall not eat, for we will surely die if we eat of that tree. If she just would have thought and called the tree what it was, maybe it would have caused her to think of the tree of life, the other tree that stood beside it that was in the midst of the garden as well. The very name of the tree calls us, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, calls us to an understanding of the fact that to partake of this fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is to attempt to govern apart from man to assert human autonomy over and above that which it, God has stated and commanded. Name the tree. Name the transgression. We are to call sin what it is. How often, though, we refuse to do this. Well, and as Eve continues, But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now she adds to God's word. At no time did God prohibit them from touching the tree. It was probably wise not to touch it. 
in an attempt to remove any possible temptation, but that is not what God says. And we must be very careful in saying God has said. We must be very careful to say God has said when he has not, whether that is a command to allow something or a command to prohibit something. Deuteronomy 4.2 says, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. A few chapters later in Deuteronomy 12, verse 32, we read, Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. And in Revelation 22, verse 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. It is a dangerous thing to add to God's word. This statement further emphasizes, I believe, what's going on in Eve's mind in regard to the generosity of God to her and to her husband, Adam. God had made no command in the negative regarding touching the fruit. The fruit was not poisonous. The fruit was not deadly. The poison and death is in the transgressing of the command of God, not in the tree itself. And his command was not to eat of the tree of, of, of the knowledge of good and evil. But this is pretty typical of us, isn't it? That we do this same thing. It's almost like Eve is saying, God won't let us eat of this tree. He's so, so stingy, he won't even let us touch it. Think about how often we take this approach in our lives. We can't do something, so we exaggerate the issue beyond the truth of the situation. We magnify the strictness of the thing that we cannot do or have been prohibited from doing. My husband didn't take out the trash today. He never takes out the trash. He never even throws away his trash and puts it in the trash can. My wife said, I can't go out with the guys tonight. She never lets me go out with the guys tonight, any night. We exaggerate the strictness of things. And Eve's not just doing that with circumstances. She's doing that with God's word. She's adding to it, exaggerating it. This was the case in the day of Christ. We, we read about this in Mark 7, 5 through 8, when he was speaking with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, the, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching the doctrines as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God, Christ said, and hold to the tradition of men. Adding to God's word, adding to God's commandments. The Pharisees were making a sin out of something that God had not commanded. 
This is what Eve was in fact doing. There was but one prohibition. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She added to it, neither shall you touch it. She took one prohibition and she added to it, making a sin out of something that wasn't. Giving in to the insinuation of Satan that God was overly strict in his prohibiting them from anything. And the last thing we will make note of here is that she once again minimizes and softens the word of God. The last part of Genesis 3.3, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Lest you die. Matthew Henry says this. Matthew Henry says, she seems a little to waver about the threatening and is not so particular and faithful in the repetition of that as of the precept. God has said in the day Thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. All she makes of that is lest you die. Note, Matthew Henry says, wavering faith and wavering resolutions give great advantage to the tempter. Great wavering faith and wavering resolutions give great advantage to the tempter. Do you see how Eve is falling for what Satan is insinuating in his question, did God actually say? It's as if Eve is now unsure about God's word. If I do this, I might die. I might not. Even though God said in sure and uncertain terms, God, Genesis 2.17, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Sure in certain terms that God uses for this. This is no ambiguous statement from God. He didn't make an ambiguous statement. He didn't use uncertain language. He states emphatically and on the power and the authority of the word of of the Creator God. You shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Yet Eve softens it here, doesn't she? Well, God said we would die, but I'm, I'm not so certain. There might be a chance, Eve thinks. Maybe that's open to my interpretation subject to my judgment regarding what he said. Satan's schemes and insinuations are leading Eve down a road that will lead to the great fall of mankind, the great catastrophe of mankind. So Eve has minimized God's word. She has omitted God's word. She has added to God's word, and she has softened God's word. She has softened God's declaration of pen penalty for transgressing his word. Well, in verses 4 and 5, 
we come to the words of Satan. Once again, the deceiver. However, this time it's not a question that he makes, but a bold proclamation. A resounding lie coming from the lips of the devil. He already has confirmed to a large degree Eve's mind uh, being bent towards his insinuation, born in the previous question that he had asked her. He now follows up that question with an outright denial of God's declared word. What this actually then, what, what is actually taking place is an emphatic denial of God's right and authority to judge, to make a judgment upon transgression of that which God prohibits or commands. This is the very first denial of any doctrine that we find in Scripture. We find at the heart of this a rejection of God's right to rule and to judge the creatures which he created. Genesis 3, 4 through 5. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Calvin says, Satan now springs more boldly forward. And because he sees a breach that has been opened before him, he breaks through in a direct assault. For he is never wont to engage in open war until we voluntarily expose ourselves to him, naked and unarmed. He cautiously approaches us at first with blandishments, but when he has stolen in upon us, he dares to exalt himself petulantly and with proud confidence against God, just as he now seizing upon Eve's doubt, penetrates further that he may turn it into a direct negative. And then he goes on to say, it behooves us to be instructed by such examples, to be aware of his snares, and by making timely resistance to keep him far from us, that nearer access may not be permitted to him. He now, therefore, does not ask doubtingly as before whether or not the command of God, which he opposes, be true. But he openly accuses God of falsehood. For he asserts that the word by which death was denounced is false and delusive. Fatal temptation. When? While God is threatening us with death, we not only securely sleep, but hold God himself in derision. That's what's taking place here. Satan directly contradicts God's word. You will not surely die. The father of lies, as John eight forty four declares him to be, John says he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is the father. He is a liar and the father of lies, John records for us. Well, this father of lies states here in Genesis 3 his very first outright lie to Eve and makes himself known to be without any doubt 
the liar that God's word declares him to be. It also, just in passing, seems that he knows God's word better than Eve. Did you see what he said? He said, you will not surely die. Eve left that part out. I don't know if he heard it when God told Adam. I don't know if he heard it when Adam told Eve. But he knew God's word. That God had said, you will surely die. Once again, Eve leaves that out. And he comes back to her and he says, you will not surely die. And it's my understanding that in the Hebrew, not is actually at the first of this phrase. Not thou shalt surely die. It's an emphatic statement that Satan here is making. But that's not where things end. It's not with just a lie about death from transgressing the command of God. He builds upon his lie with further insinuations and falsehoods regarding God. For God knows that when you eat of it, in, cha in chapter 3, verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now we see the sinister thoughts. That, that Satan is trying to put into Eve's mind. Here the serpent, the deceiver, our adversary, the father of lies, boldly proclaims that God has been holding out on Adam and Eve. God doesn't want them to reach their potential as if God were some evil despot or some maniacal, tyrannical ruler wanting to hold them back so he forbids them from eating so that they'll be like him. Satan insinuating again that God is trying to keep you, Eve, lower than him. Knowing that if you partake of what, is, what he has forbidden, you'll be like him. Knowing good and evil, you'll be as God. Hughes, in one of his commentaries, makes mention of this threat of death for eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says that Satan was insinuating that God was using it as a scare tactic to keep them from being like him. The great irony in this, after all, is that in partaking of the, the fruit, part of the death would, that would come would be a marring of the image of God in which man was created. No other physical creature was made in the image of God in which Adam had been made and Eve from him. No other man, no other physical creation made except this man of the dust formed and made living by the very breath of God was made in the image of God. No other physical creation, no other being of physical creation. And Satan tells Eve basically that God is withholding this from you keeping you from reaching what you are capable of reaching, of reaching your potential. Satan suggests that God just wants to keep her down, just withholding that which should be hers. What a foolish bill of goods has been sold to mankind. 
Satan insinuates that God fears to have them as equals. How foolish that the creature could be equal to the creator. Not a single one of God's commands or of his uh, commands of allowance or of prohibition are designed to cause us harm. Not a single one. They're not designed to keep us from reaching our potential. They're designed to keep us from falling to the lowest point that we could fall. Not one command designed to keep us from our potential. His commands are for our good. They're for our preservation. And his commands that he gives to a lot to, for us to follow in a positive manner are that which calls us to do what is good and right, not only for our benefit and the benefit of others around us, but also for his glory, which is due to him, which should be our ultimate goal. Let me ask you for a moment. What parent in the world would really want their child to have a knowledge of evil? Does the knowledge, does the experience of evil somehow add anything redeeming to our lives? Grace and I just watched a movie called The Sound of Freedom. about child trafficking and child sex trafficking. That sin and knowledge of evil that was experienced by these children as a result of mankind's fall into sin. I don't have to say, I dare say, I think I know that no parent would ever want their child to be exposed to that evil. God did not proclaim a prohibition against eating this fruit to keep us in the dark. It was for our good. But our enemy is a cunning liar. And he lies in degrees. First questioning God. Then once questioning of God's word begins, he brings forth bold lies. And we'll look at what follows next week as we see the fall and truly understand what James means in James 1.15 when he says, Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. As we finish this morning, though, I, I want to have our minds directed to a few things. First, I want to ask, do we believe that God's commands are unreasonable? Or too strict? Do we buy into the lies of the father of lies? When he whispers that it is somehow harmful to you to heed God's command. Somehow holding you back to do that which God has commanded you. Second, I want to ask, is what we have seen here in the interaction between Eve and Satan not the case with all of us when we sin? I would say that it is. Do we not go through the same process? Has God actually said? Is God being overly strict? This is something that I desire. I see that it will bring me pleasure 
I see that I might gain something by doing that which he commands I not do. And then when that desire is conceived, what does it do? James says it brings forth what? Sin. And what we say is, I will not surely die. And I do that which brings death. Do we as Christians, even after we have been saved and salvation has come to us, not have this same mindset when we sin? And we as his people have one more question that we should be asking when tempted to sin. We should be asking, am I going to deny God's word, give in to fleshly desire, engage in the sin that is not just sin against my creator and covenant God, but also the sin which necessitated the death of my Savior and my substitute. Do you see what a miserable thing sin is? To go against my God who knows the plans he has for us according to Jeremiah? Plans to prosper us or for our welfare? Not for evil? How miserable a thing is sin. This rebellion from God's word is that I would profane the name of my Savior who died for me and bore the penalty of each and every sin that I committed. Flee, you fool, is what we should be saying to ourselves. Flee from sin, resist the devil, do not engage with him, he is a master manipulator, as we see from this account in Genesis 3. And I would have us think as well that each of the great sins of our day, whether they appear great or small, they are all great because they are against a great God, are born about in this way that we have seen this morning. Satan hasn't changed his tactics. He's improved upon the same old tactics that he's always used. Think about this. Has God really said you shall not murder? Has he really said that? This is the way the world thinks. It's only a fetus. It's not yet a person. He didn't mean that. It's not that serious. He's just trying to hold me back from reaching my potential. Do you see the way this works? If I have this baby... I may have difficulty in school. I may have to postpone my career. It's just going to cause hardship. He's just being stingy. It's not really that bad. It's not really wrong for me to have an abortion. And then what happens? Sin. Has God really said that marriage is between a man and a woman? Has he really said that? But it's not hurting anyone. It's just love, and what's the popular saying today? Love is love. He's just trying to hold me back. He doesn't want me to be happy. He's just being stingy. Why should I not have that which I desire? It's not wrong. He's just unrealistic in his restriction. It doesn't apply to today's time. And then what happens? Sin. Has God really said that he made them male and female? 
He just doesn't want me to be happy. He doesn't care about my feelings and my desires. I don't want to be what he made me to be. He made me wrong. This isn't going to hurt anyone. I have a right to be me and be what I want and live the way that I want. Sin. Did God really say I have to obey my parents? Did God really say I have to love my wife? Did God really say I have to submit to my husband? Did God really say I have to go to church? Did God really say I have to read his word? Did God really say I have to believe in Jesus Christ as the exclusive way that salvation is obtained? Do you see the way Satan works? Did God really say? Begins to tempt and then comes to us with bold-faced lies. God did not really say. You shall not surely die. There's no judgment. There's no sin. There's no accountability to God. Lies of the devil. Think about your life. Think about the sins that you've committed and continue to commit in your life and see if this same basic pattern isn't what you see. There's nothing new, folks, under the sun. say this as we conclude everything that we've looked at this morning and I pray that we ever look at through scripture should drive us all right to the foot of Calvary's cross where we might see the one who can and did overcome every temptation without sin Hebrews 4.15 makes that clear to us. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. This knowledge of what transpired with Eve in the garden and the same actions that we see in our own lives should lead us away from ourselves to the hope of Jesus Christ. This is our only hope for sins, past, present, and future. Vodi Bauckham in one of his messages made mention of this. He is our only hope. Christianity is the only hope we have for past sins. There is no other religion in the world who takes into account past sins. Christianity alone has a solution for that, and it's Christ. Man will constantly say, this is the trap of humanity. Man will always say, I could do better. I could make better decisions and do what God wants if only I had this or had that. If only I had a better spouse, I wouldn't do these things. I'd make better decisions. 
I wouldn't drink. I wouldn't gamble. Eve had Adam, and Adam had Eve, and they were perfect. And temptation and sin came. Oh, if only I had a better place to live and I didn't have to struggle. I didn't have to struggle to make ends meet. Things would be different. Adam and Eve lived in the paradise of God. There is no situation that you find yourself in that you would have done it better. What does that lead us to? Here's the reason. Our confidence and our hope cannot be in us. It must be in Christ Jesus. Our lot, lock, stock, and barrel, must be in with him. Must be. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the provision for us, Lord, and we look forward to looking into your word more where you point us toward that provision uh, later on here in chapter 3 where there's the first promise, the first promise of good news. Good news of Christ. Lord, may we, through him and the power of the Holy Spirit, Seek to live lives that are pleasing and glorifying to you. Lord, may we share with others the hope of the gospel. That yes, things have gone terribly wrong in this world in sin. But there's one who came who had no sin and gave himself a ransom for many. Lord, may we point others towards Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.